The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for your rich provision for us, that even as we acknowledge it to be a little chilly in here, you've given us basics like shelter, care for our needs in that way. Far more importantly, of course, you have acted. You've taken the initiative in your grace and your power to provide for our greatest need, to provide for us a Savior. And we thank you for him and pray, as has already been prayed, that you would cause him to shine And you would warm our hearts with him and what you have done in him for us and with what that means for what you will continue to do every day and every moment for us, your people, whom you have saved and will not abandon. We walk through life in need and you promise to never leave us nor forsake us. Not now, not today, not tomorrow not for eternity. Claim us for your people. You walk with us and you save us continually. So warm our hearts with that, Lord, and move us to trust you. Please, today, through this passage, warm our hearts with your sure hold on us to save once and forever, and then move us to trust you. Well, there may be that some of us here face particular challenges and particular needs. You know who that would be. And I ask you, Father, by your Spirit to particularly step up to face and touch that person, those people who need to know and need to be assured of, need to grab hold of your deliverance. Some here who perhaps are not Christians, but Lord, I I think of Christians here who need to know that you face them, you know them, you have them. So say that to them so they can hear it. Bless your children with that, I ask you, please. Make your word clear to us. Preach to us, Holy Spirit, I ask. Allow us to focus, to hear, to see you, and to be changed. We look to you, our Savior, our God, our hope. And that is because of Christ, in his name we pray. Amen. We return this morning to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 14. Picking up where we left off three weeks ago after looking at chapter 13 which, you'll recall, was a chapter of surprising tragedy. The very new king, Saul, he's not been a king for very long, and he is facing off against that consistent enemy of Israel, the Philistines, and it all goes very poorly. His son, Jonathan, takes the initiative and attacks the Philistines, and they respond with a a, a massive military initiative, 
They send a huge army into Israel, and as that army moves in, Saul's 3,000 men begin to scatter. Not just the army, in fact, but all the people who live, live across the countryside. They flee, they hide, they run away. The army itself melts away in the face of this approaching horde. Yet Saul, good thing so far, Saul himself remains at Gilgal, waiting on the Lord. Samuel had told him to do that. Samuel had prescribed to him what was probably meant to be a, a regular habit in time of need. Go to Gilgal, this, this special place, and there wait upon the Lord for seven days, the fullness of time. And then I, Samuel, he said, the prophet, I will come to you. I will sacrifice the offerings that are pleasing to God, that signify fellowship between you and God, and I will give to you his answer, his word, his guidance. So go to Gilgal and wait in time of need. This was a huge time of need. Saul went there and Saul hung out and waited and waited and waited almost long enough. But he lost patience in the face of fear. He did what he wasn't supposed to do and he offered the sacrifices himself. And just at that moment, Samuel showed up and pronounced the tragic verdict. He said, because you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, your reign is already over. Saul, you're done. It just started. It's over. God, God's verdict is just sudden and absolute. Now, Saul, of course, is going to remain functioning as the king for decades. The tragic truth was that God had already pronounced him finished and had already sought out his replacement. And then, perhaps even more alarmingly, Samuel got up and walked away, just left. Left them 600 men now hanging in the face of the Philistine army. No peace offerings, sacrifice, no fellowship with God, no word from the Lord, no guidance or plan. And as the rest of the chapter fleshes out, they hardly even have any weapons. This massive Philistine army is camped out right in the middle of Israel. And, and while the people did have some crude weapons, they didn't have any proper military armaments. As the, the last part of the chapter makes clear, the Philistines have done a really good job of preventing that. And so Israel is in a terrible situation. Nothing looks good. It's, there's, there's no hope here except for Jonathan who sees something else entirely. Everybody else is looking at, at the lack, at what we don't have and what's here. And Jonathan has eyes set on something else. Something he sees but his father, even the king, doesn't see. That's what we're going to look at in chapter 14. We're going to look at the first half of the chapter, verses 1 to 23. So let me read the passage, and I'll pass back through it to make sure we understand it before making a couple of observations. It's 1 Samuel, chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come. Let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gebeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes, 
by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison. There was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come down to you. Then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him, And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about twenty men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gebeah of Benjamin looked... And behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who is gone from us. When they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. Behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. The word of the Lord. This is the day of battle, a highly unlikely event. It's the day of battle that was referred to at the end of chapter 13, when, when nobody had a sword except Jonathan and Saul. And here we have it. Jonathan's armed and he has some armor in verses 1 to 5 set the stage for us. You notice how 1 and 6 are essentially the same statement. 1 through 5 sets the stage. Jonathan is thinking and he hatches a plan. But Saul and actually nobody else is involved with it at all. Nobody knows anything about it. The rest of the men are all back at the camp, safely separated from the main Philistine force. Saul's there with a priest who's wearing an ephod which you'll recall was kind of like a priestly garment that was worn over the shoulders, down across the chest, 
to represent the priest would take it into the presence of God to represent the people. And there was also a little pocket in it that had two special rocks that the priest would reach in and would, would grab one or the other as God led his hand to answer either-or type of questions. We're going to see that later in chapter 14 next week. He was wearing this ephod, so that's a good thing. But if you look at the guy who's wearing it, if you've tracked with us through this book at all so far, you know that being a son of Eli, son of Phineas, nephew of Ichabod, that's a bad thing all around. That, that's, a, that's a lineage that is saying to us, not a good guy. Ichabod, you recall, the glory has departed. Neither one of these two men are going to be any help in the story, though they should be. The focus is on Jonathan, and he has a plan. He says to his armor-bearer, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. In the setting, the, the couple of verses there that describe it, the physical setting, there's a little valley, and on either side of it, nearly impassable terrain, which is why the two posts are opposite each other, but not engage with each other. Is that Between them, there's this rocky crag and this rocky crag, really hard to, to get through there. And there's one outpost on the other side, and, and jo- Jonathan says, let's go over, in verse 6, to the uncircumcised over there, which is part fact, part insult. Kind of like what David would say about Goliath later, you'll recall. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Part fact, part insult. It's a statement about covenant. Physically, yes, he's uncircumcised, which discreetly I'll say, as as a mark on the body. You can explain it to your kids later if you want. Physically, he's uncircumcised, but what that means in the ears and on the tongue of an Israelite is not part of the covenant people like we are. There's a people on which God's favor rests, and there's them. That's them. Let's go over there to them. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to show us, we're going to show ourselves and I'm going to hail them and say, hey guys, and however they respond is how we're going to discern God's involvement. If they say, wait down there for us, we'll wait, which is likely going to become nothing because the Philistines are not going to climb down through this nearly impassable terrain expecting, as soon as they get there, the Israelites to run away into their caves again. They're not going to come down. So in other words, if they say, just hang out there and wait for us, Nothing's going to happen. But if they invite us up, let's go. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. And bold. Because he's trusting that the Lord is going to lead us in their words to invite us up. And if that happens, armor bearer, let's go. I'm with you all the way. Let's do it. So they go out there. That's what happens. They hail them. And they say, come on up here, let's show you. we'll show you a thing or two. Come on up here. Never expecting it to happen. It's so, it's so steep and so hard. He has to climb up there with, using his hands, sword slung over his back. And he gets to the top. And in the first strike, it says, verse 14, this is just the initial contact, the first strike, he knocks down 20 of them and his armor bearer follows behind with a knife and kills them. That's sanitized. 
if you, if you can, if you've ever seen a movie of this sort of warfare, it must have been tremendous. He kills 20 guys by himself. Armor Bear is not fighting with him. He's following along behind to administer the final blow. This is difficult. Jonathan hatches a plan that he knows is going to be incredibly difficult. It may very well cost him his life. But he discerns in their statement, come up to us, ah, the Lord has given them into, they say, my hands, given them into the hand of Israel. He does not view this as he himself picking a fight with a few guys over there. He views it as my father, never mind my father, I will go out at the head of Israel and lead us into God's victory. The Lord has given them into our hands with me taking the initiative. Remarkably courageous step. And he goes up and he strikes down 20. In verse 15, three times the word for panic is used. Panic sets into the camp. Panic in the field. A trembling among all the people. The earth quakes. What's going on here? Depending on what English translation you have, you might get a clue by the the very end of verse 15 or perhaps in a footnote. Because literally, it is a panic of God. Meaning, a great, big, large, unusual, dreadful, something supernatural type of panic. This is not normal fear. This is the type of panic that makes people do unusual things, like, as it says later, every man's sword against his neighbor in broad daylight. I mean, when that happened with Gideon, at least it was at night, so there could have been confusion there. This is broad daylight, and the Philistines, with one Israelite combatant on the field, all panic and set against each other. It's a panic from God. God is intervening and causing a trembling and causing a confusion and causing a tumult. And back at the camp, Saul's watchmen notice. They can see the camp, the Philistine camp from a distance and notice that something's going on. They figure out that Jonathan's gone and Saul calls for the ark. And we find out they brought the ark with them, which could be good or could be bad. We've been here before. But at least he goes to inquire the Lord and he says to the priest, ask the Lord what we, what we must do. And the priest begins to intervene sticking his hand in the pocket of the ephod to to ask the Lord probably, should we go out and attack or not? Saul's doing the right thing, and he loses patience again as he sees with his eyes events getting ahead of him, and he says, stop asking the Lord. This is the equivalent of, never mind praying, we've got work to do. Pull out your hand means the priest sticks his hand in and waits for the Lord to give him some sort of an inkling as to which stone to grab. Never mind, we're done with that. I know what we're doing. Saul's decline continues. But they pile in, and actually all the Israelites pile in, even those who had been on the side of the Philistines pile in. And it ends, the stay of battle ends with the Philistines chased for miles. And so that we don't miss it, verse 23 summarizes, 
So the Lord saved Israel that day. Who would have thought when the sun came up what was going to happen? Nobody. But Jonathan had a plan. So we're going to look at this passage now and figure out what does that mean for us. We're going to make two observations from it. Both of them are about the Lord, and both of them have clear implications and applications to us. So here's the first point. The Lord is not hindered from saving by the circumstances. The Lord is not hindered from saving by the circumstances of a situation, by the need, by the problem. He's not hindered by an apparent lack of resources. That's the truth about the Lord and the application to us, which is good news for us because we live in a world that's full of need. We are a people who live amongst trouble. And the Lord is not hindered by anything from saving. This passage shows us that and that it is set in a tremendously desperate situation. Coming right out of chapter 13, the point is to drive home. They have nothing. They don't have an army. They don't have a leader. They don't have any weapons. They don't have any allies. In fact, some of their own people are allied with the enemy. They have nothing. And worst of all, they don't enjoy the presence of God. Samuel leaves. And with him, God's favor departs. Saul's left there functioning as a king. He's got a priest there functioning as a priest, but we know very well that God's hand has been taken off of both of those office holders. They have nothing. In the eyes of the world, Israel's without hope and without God. There's no chance. Except that Jonathan is looking at something different. Jonathan's looking at someone different. He says in verse 6, which is a critical verse, let's go over there. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That's the point. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, a lot or a little. When we see a problem and we set out to solve it, we are naturally limited by, constrained by our resources, but not God. If there are many of us or if there are few of us, if there are many weapons or few, if there are many allies or not, it, it does not matter. God is not hindered by either of them. He is omnipotent. He is full of complete wisdom. He is free and unconstrained by anything outside of his own nature. He can do anything. And he does. He saves them both providentially and supernaturally. Remember that word providence? We see it again here. Providentially, God working through ordinary human means to accomplish his purposes. And ordinary human means, like one man with a sword, who's planning, who's exerting, who's using his muscles, using his agility, certainly. And all the other Israelites who join in later. But then supernaturally, he threw them into a great panic. That's from God. 
And both of those are joined together under the last statement, and so the Lord saved Israel. Not Jonathan saved Israel. The Lord saved Israel. The Lord is not hindered from saving by the circumstances. And actually, he often loves to save contrary to the apparent circumstances. You realize he really frequently does this. He leads the people out of Egypt directly into a sea and then parts it. He leads them through the wilderness to a flooded river and then parts it. He defeats 125,000 Midianites after whittling an army down to 300 guys and then telling them to put down all the sharp things. God very frequently works to save His people Almost, it would seem, wouldn't it, going out of his way to set up the circumstances to make it seem like it could never be. And then he does it. Why? Why? Because he's really poor at planning. No, of course not. Because he doesn't know his geography very well, doesn't realize that this road leads to an ocean. No, of course not. Why does God work like this? So consistently. I would suggest to you He works like this to highlight one thing and denigrate another. Can you figure it out? He works like this to highlight one person and denigrate all others. Can you figure it out? He works like this to show off something, to highlight His omnipotent power and His total wisdom, that is, His glory, His godness, and to tear down every hint of us trusting in us, of every desire of us to lean on our known, seen resources. He takes them up to an to a sea or to a river, takes the weapons out of their hands so that they are, are not remotely inclined to think by our might, by our strength, by our wisdom, by our horses, by our chariots, by our swords, we saved ourselves. No. Can't be. He saved. He works like this all the time. Like when He broke the power of the curse of death and sin. We don't often think about this, but put yourself for a second in a spot where you are looking at the power of the curse. We are more accustomed to thinking of, man, you know, if we could just get the right government and just get the right laws and just get some, some of the right economic levers pulled and the engine moving, then I think, I think then righteousness and justice would be the the rule of the land. And, And equity would happen. And if we can just get some more money for research, then, then health will advance and, and we will become, I mean, maybe not eternal, but close to it. If, 
You know, world peace is just right around the corner for several thousand years. Put yourself in the spot of, of the hold of the, the curse and mourn over that. No hope. In temporary moments, in in little pieces, we find hope. The sun shines today. I have enough money and I'm healthy and this, this steak is marvelous. In this little moment, there's hope. But in the, the larger picture, there is none. The curse grips us with an iron fist. It has you by the throat. It can let you enjoy a moment because it has your eternity. Every one of us, bound as slaves to decay. And then further, could we not talk about sin and all of the evil that we commit because we cannot break free from it. Put yourself there for for a moment without any hope in the world, without God in the world. Gripped by an enemy who hates you and has you. Looking at all the circumstances and looking at every resource that we as individuals or we as a people, we as a world have, there is nothing that we can do about it. We have tried every political and every military and, and every economic and every intellectual pursuit to fix this place it hasn't happened it isn't going to and glory be to God the fact that all of the circumstances say wreckage without hope is not relevant to him when he decides to save He figured out a way to break the power of the curse in a way that is completely illogical, like one guy climbing up a rocky cliff to fight an army. Completely illogical. He sent God the Son to earth to become a man, and then on top of that, killed him on a cross. Folly. One man who goes forward to deliver Israel. Glory be to God, it worked. He highlights His omnipotent power and His total wisdom and our utter inadequacy, folly, and vulnerable need most pointedly by saving us from the power of the curse when there was no hope at all in our hands, not a one. Glory to God. Glory to God. He's not bound by the circumstances. And so then he can say to you, this is good news for you because you live in the wreckage and need to be saved. And he can save you. I mean that in two ways. I don't know everybody that I'm talking to here, but I mean it in two ways because it could be that some, for the first time ever, need to think about being saved. And by that I mean saved from the wrath of God. 
Because not only does the the sin and the curse that grips us mean that we wreck this place, but this place belongs to someone. And we will answer to Him. We belong to someone. And we will answer to Him for the wrecking job that we have done. And glory be to God, He has provided a way for you to be saved from that wrath that is coming. So I invite you, if that's you, if the the buzzer's going off for you right now, (laughs) we will wait. The buzzer will continue to go off. If that's you, I exhort you. I encourage you, but I exhort you. Both those things. See, both of those need to be clear. To exhort because God makes clear demands and to encourage because God is making an offer of hope. You have a moment. I I trust that eventually this thing is going to go off. But you have a moment. And during that moment, you can make a decision. But when it goes off, it'll be over. This is Actually, this is quite providential. <laughs> because none of us apparently knows when that's going off. <laughs> and none of us know... <laughs> bless, bless God. Bless God for that. Bless God for that. Because in the middle of the sentence, He will come and demand your life from you. In the middle of the sentence, you don't know when that is. And the glory is that He has provided an opportunity, but it will, the door will close in the middle of the sentence, and He will demand from you an accounting, and you will say, I heard one day, I heard about a Savior who was provided, and I said, no thank you, can I, no, too late. Is that you right now? The exhortation and the offer from God is the offer is come and trust this Christ provided to break from off of you the shackles that hold you and the wrath that is coming. Today. Today. But for many of us, I know for most of us here, I mean to say He saves you Oh, His Israel. He saves you because He is already your Savior. For most of us, that's already true. And the point, the point to you, I'll put it like this in a question. Are you in a hopeless situation? Some of us may say yes, but then actually all of us should say no. No. But I'll ask it the first way. Are you in a hopeless situation? Meaning, do you face some sort of enemy, some sort of manifestation of the enemy of your soul, of the fallen world, the flesh that plagues you, of the the decay that still plagues you? Do you face some manifestation of that right now and say, oh, how can I be freed from this? How can I grow in this? How can this be changed for me? How? Sometimes we face a battle against sin and and guilt habits and patterns in our lives. Or perhaps you should be facing a battle. Maybe you're just 
surrendered to it. But we look at sin and feel again and again and again. I keep going back. Oh, man, wretched man that I am. Maybe the manifestation is somehow in a relationship you have, a spouse, child, even an adult child, some of us even parents. The relationship is just in some way or another hard. What, how, when can this change? Maybe it's a very tangible thing like a physical need of of finances or health or something of of that sort. In some way, are you in a hopeless situation? For some of us, the answer is yes, but then I want to suggest to you that really the answer is no. Because the saving power of God is your hope and His disposition to use it on behalf of you, His people, His circumcised ones. He loves you with an everlasting love and has drawn you to Him with loving kindness and He will not abandon you. How exactly will His power come to you to save you from the hopeless situation? I don't know. But we do know this. It will be good in the definition of God. And in time to come, you will bless His name for it. In time to come, when you see a little more, you will bless His name for it. He will save. And the fact that in your eyes it looks hopeless is not relevant. He's not bound by the circumstances. He's not limited by what we can see. He will save you. He may save you out from the situation. He may use it to save you from greater trials and dangers. We, we, we do not know. But He promises to intervene in your life to preserve you, to most critically carry you all the way to the end, saving you from your great danger, the threat to your soul. He has you. Whatever it is, He has it. And whatever the circumstances look like in your life, it's not relevant. He's God. Which means, would you, oh, would you be, and and I say this not in a chastising way, but in a, Uh, a desiring way, would you be then a joyful person? Would you ask yourself, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope, you talking to your soul, put your hope in God. Why so downcast, O my soul? 
You gotta take this hopeless situation, you take it and you grab it and you say, but there actually is hope in a God who is not bound by the fact that it looks like there's no way out of this for me, that it's never going to change, that I cannot find any victory, any relief, that there is no God of goodness in life over me. It looks like that to my eyes. Take that thought, grab it, drag it underneath of the truth that God is not hindered by that, but in fact it's for you, saving you. And rejoice in all things. Again, I say rejoice. It's an awesome, awesome reality. You have a hope. A hope that is sure. More sure than what you see with your very own eyes. The Lord is not hindered from saving by any of the circumstances. And the second observation is this. The Lord loves to save by using a servant who trusts Him. The Lord loves to save by using a servant who trusts Him. So we notice that it's the Lord who saves. That's where the passage ends. We need to be clear on that. But He used a servant. Without Jonathan, the story doesn't happen. He used somebody who is thinking and planning in faith. You watch, watch his wheels turn. We are the group of people that God has claimed as his own, brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand, brought into the land of promise, and them ones ain't. The uncircumcised. He's got some general understanding of who is in the game. And which side God is on. God is for us, His covenant people. And so He will not let us be destroyed. So that's something that He knows in general. And He's looking at the capabilities of God and thinking through. Nothing hinders Him. Not the circumstance. Though it looks hopeless to everybody else, that's not relevant to Him. So here's what we're going to do. To flesh out that it may be that He might work for us. To flesh that out, I'm going to go out critical point, and take a step into vulnerability. I'm going to take a step into the wide open spaces and they're going to see us. Take a risk. And then I'm going to talk to them. And I'm going to trust the Lord to respond through what they say. It's not presumption. He's... he's leaving as much space as he can for God to steer the situation. But he knows if I don't do anything, what will happen is nothing. I'm going to take a step forward. Out of comfort into vulnerability. Do you see the trust of God, the faith in that? Saul and company are looking at the whole situation with these eyes are processing it through. And it leads them to fear and disobedience. And even when they take the right step, even when he takes the right step towards inquiring of the Lord, he again looks at what he sees with his eyes. The camp's breaking up. We've got to get there. Hurry up. Hurry up. Oh, never mind. Let's go. He again breaks off from God. 
based on what he sees with his own eyes. And Jonathan sees the very same stuff and knows that God loves to save through a servant who trusts Him. Let that be me. Now, he, does, he has, as I said, he has some general information about where God's general plan lies, where God's general favor lies. He does not have a specific promise. I will give you victory over those 20 other guys in the first strike or throughout the rest of the day. I will certainly promise to spare you your life. doesn't have that promise either. In fact, we know later on, Jonathan dies in battle. But he knows the generalities, and without knowing all the specifics, critical point for us, without knowing all the specific details, takes a step forward into vulnerability. Kind of like somebody else. If you think about this, what's not written, chapter 13, God through Samuel tells Saul, you're done, I'm looking for another. The other would have been whom? Jonathan. He's the son. But it's not going to be Jonathan. Because he says, your house is done. Jonathan already knows he's not going to be king. The story's already moved on to somebody else. But Jonathan is showing us what the king is like. The king's not him, but the king's like him, who by himself will go out before the people of God to deliver the people of God from their enemies. Just like who? David. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would taunt the armies of the living God? Give me a rock, says the young man David. Just like what the king is supposed to be. Someone who trusts in the Lord and steps out believing his promises to deliver his people from their enemies, who is actually just like somebody else. Who's that supposed to be? Another servant of the Lord who trusting the promises of God, steps out to face the enemies and deliver the people, Israel. Okay, you know where I'm going with this. Christian, this is all supposed to be pointing us at the servant who in faith did something that we can articulate but will never fully understand by the grace of God. There is one who considered in his all-knowing mind what incarnation, what coming into flesh, descending onto the planet, onto that fallen planet, earth, subjecting himself then to the people of that fallen planet, who contemplated and knew what all that would be like. And who contemplated and knew what it would be like to look at the cup of the fury of the wrath of God. 
to have before him the eyes of his father, not looking on him in a smile, please, but in fury. An omnipotent, holy, pure fury. To feel the delighted fingers of the enemy of all of our souls reach out to grab him as hell opens up before him. And said in that moment, a moment that we will never know, said in that moment, I'm going to take a step forward and believe that he will not let my body see decay. I'm going to trust the promise. Bless God for that. Thank Jesus for that. Because that's how we are saved. By a servant who trusts Him and steps forward to win for us victory, to save. And to give us a model that we are to follow. To give us a model that we are to follow. This is very important. Because we can be tempted to only see half the picture here. And to see the phrases like, And so the Lord delivered Israel. And to see this is all pointing us towards God's deliverance of Israel in Christ. And to to see it as what God has done out there. And to never realize that we are to be servants of the Lord also Christ-like. And that God loves to save through servants who trust Him. Not just to save servants who trust Him, but to save through, to save others. To do His work of building His kingdom through those who trust Him. So, critical point here. Our trust of Him will show itself to be genuine like this. Got that? Trust shows itself to be genuine like that. The step forward. This may be genuine because it may be just about to lead to this. I'm not, I'm not saying we should never contemplate, we should never think, we should never ponder, we should never evaluate. I would suggest to you that Jonathan thought it all through before he spoke. We have to think. What is the truth? Who is God? Where is He in relation to me, in relation to the problems and the enemies that I face? What does He say? What does He promise? That has to come. That has to come a step forward that is trust. Not just a a random vulnerability, but a vulnerability of, of the sort that would be needed for God to move in situation X or Y or Z. As you're contemplating a particular situation, what's the step of faith into it? Let me give an example. An evangelism example. You've got a co-worker God loves to work to save through people, servants of His who trust Him. 
I have no sure promise that he's going to save this guy. I have no sure promise that the next conversation I'm going to have with him is going to work out at all. But the step of reasonable faith would be to say hello, etc. To move towards him. Holding up in the back office might not be the best option. No, I'll be more clear. Holding up in the, best, in the back office is not the best option if you're never going to have contact with that person. I once heard, um, spiritually speaking, I grew up in an environment that talked a lot about evangelism and used this phraseology, perhaps you've heard it before, that successful evangelism is taking the initiative in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. That's, that's this. You could take out evangelism and put in anything else. Successful, biblically speaking, successful parenting, successful talking to my neighbor, successful encouragement, successful love is taking the initiative in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. The step must happen. Now, yes, God works supernaturally sometimes. He does sometimes send the great panic, so to speak. He does work supernaturally. But the vast majority of the time, how God builds His kingdom is by providence, by working through other agents, the weather, particularly Christians when we're speaking about building the kingdom, people who trust Him. He wants to use us. So, your action, your behavior is a critical element in God's work. Driven by Him and empowered by Him, yes. I I don't believe... I, I have no idea what kind of a guy Jonathan was, but 20 against one in a sword fight, I, I, I think are probably insurmountable odds. So I'm inclined to believe that God empowered that. But I'm sure that his muscles and his agility and his mind, his hands were at work. We trust God. We, we must have God empower us, but we must... Our minds, our muscles, our our agility, our tongues, our hearts at work. In dependence on God to use it. And like Christ, judging God to be able to save us out of all of the trouble and out of all the hardship that our faith-filled initiative may bring us. Follow that. Stepping forward may cost you something. You have no sure promises of what's going to happen. It may cost you something. But you trust God to deliver you out of that, whatever it is, whatever happens. He's got it. So God saves. God saves. It's not hindered by the circumstances, but He loves to use people who trust Him. 
So walk in joy and in faith. And ask God now as I close in prayer and then give you a chance to think here. Ask God, what do I need to do? You need to repent of something? Is there a step forward that you need to take? Ask Him. They pray. Father, would you speak to us, your people? In the next moment here, before we head to communion, would you speak to us and show your people what they must do? Would you build in your people joy for the hope that you are? And would you call someone here to faith the first time? I pray that you would do that, and I trust it to you. I leave the results in your hands. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.